Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. It's a common tale, a gunman out for revenge in the American West, whose six-shooter leaves a trail of bodies behind him. But The Thousand Crimes of Ming Su, the debut novel by Tom Lin, takes a novel twist on the genre by having its gunman be Ming Su, a Chinese man orphaned in the United States, out on a journey to murder those who press-ganged him to work on the railroads. But The Thousand Crimes of Ming Su is more than that, as it delves into the supernatural, the mystical, and the philosophical, as Ming continues his journey across the American West. Tom Lin was born in China and immigrated to the United States when he was four. A graduate of Pomona College, he is currently in the PhD program at the University of California, Davis. Today, Tom and I will talk about the setting of The Thousand Crimes of Ming Su and his choices around its characters. We'll also talk about using a Chinese-American main character in a Western-type story. So, Tom, thank you for joining me today on the Asian View of Books podcast. I'd like to start by asking about just the period of time The Thousand Crimes of Ming Su is based in. Um, what's the Western United States like at this time? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, and, and thanks so much for having uh, having me on, Nicholas. Um, so the the book is set in 1869, right when the first transcontinental railroad is nearing completion, um, and it actually gets finished on uh, I think May 10th, 1869, near Promontory, Utah. So we uh, just passed the 150th anniversary of it. So the rails uh, took six years to build, start to finish. Uh, it was built between Sacramento on the western terminus in California to Omaha on the eastern terminus in Nebraska. Um, it was built by two companies building towards each other. This is the uh, Central Pacific on the west and the Union Pacific on the east. Uh, about, I think the split is somewhere between 700 to uh, 1100 on each side. Um, they really are the first major industrial infrastructural project to be done on the continent. It's a time of massive change, and the railroad is just one part of it. The Civil War ended in 1865, um, and the railroad, as it gets finished, it enables the rapid growth of these Western states while also facilitating the bloody battles that will eventually see the indigenous populations of the, of the Americas forced onto reservations far from their ancestral homelands, while those lands then themselves become picked apart for mineral resources. So the railroad is really heralding in this kind of new industrial America, it expands the reach of the federal government. It brings about the creation of standardized time zones. And it becomes a really crucial player in this American story of manifest destiny. And so in the Western states, you know, in 1869, outside of major towns and cities, it in some ways is almost lawless. There really is this collective belief uh, in the frontier as being a wild place, as being somehow outside of the rule of law. And so when these people who have these beliefs get to the, the frontier, finally, they end up manifesting them and making them real through their actions. Um, you know, in, in a very kind of real sense, the Union Pacific, as, for instance, as it's going along, it's dropping towns um, working east to west. And these towns become known as hell on wheels towns because they're just cesspits of violence, crime and debauchery. People get killed constantly in these towns. Um, but in the decades that follow these years, the United States becomes a world power for the first time. And so what I think this, this time period represents is a kind of incubation for American industrial imperialism. It's a time period where the national belief in something like American exceptionalism first becomes articulated in, in kind of a proto form. 
And could you tell us a bit more about the history of the Chinese community on the West Coast? Um, obviously, they've been associated with um, working on the railroads, uh, a lot of mistreatment around, um, a lot of racism around these communities. But could you tell us a bit more just about the history of the Chinese community in the West, on the West Coast? Yeah, of course. So in 1848, uh, this guy, James Marshall, discovers gold in Northern California. The next year, uh, 1849, 325 Chinese 49ers arrive in California. The year after that, it's 450 of them. Uh, then it's 2,700, and then it's 20,000. So the number of Chinese immigrants coming into California uh, for the gold rush, it takes off exponentially, starting in the 1850s. By 1875, it's estimated that almost 180,000 Chinese have immigrated to the United States. Now, a lot of these migrants don't actually intend on coming here permanently, most of their plan actually just involves coming to the States, making a lot of money, you know, striking it rich with gold, and then going home to live out the rest of their lives in China as wealthy men. Um, you know, of course, in practice, a lot of them do end up staying. But in the early days when there's gold everywhere, there isn't a lot of conflict. Um, but as soon as that surface gold dries up and it becomes a little hard to get, um, that very quickly stops becoming the case. Um, so then what then happens is that these Chinese miners come here, there's no gold left for them. And what is left for them, they can't actually mine because the white prospectors and miners are suspicious and hateful. And at the same time that this is happening, laws are getting passed that tax these Chinese miners on anything they do manage to mine. So remember, the Chinese start arriving in 1849, the foreign miners tax, which is really just aimed at Chinese miners, that gets passed in 1850. That's how quickly that hate spools up. And the next year, uh, the foreign miners tax is repealed only to pass another one that is even higher. Um, and then you have all these laws that take place over the next few years that strip these Chinese immigrants of an even wider variety of rights. So in 1855, there's the really lengthy uh, name, Act to Discourage the Immigration to This State of Persons Who Cannot Become Citizens Thereof. When, and that just means Chinese immigrants. In 1860, uh, another law is passed that prohibits public schooling for non-white children. Um, in 1862, uh, what's known as the Anti-Cooley Act passes, uh, and that, that is the name of the act, uh, which taxes Chinese workers even further. Um, in 1863, a law is passed that bars, quote, Mongolians and Chinese uh, from giving evidence in court for or against a white man. And so they, they come to be excluded from nearly every facet of civil and juridical society. You know, so how are they treated? In a word, poorly. Um, but at the same time that all this is going on, construction begins on the railroad. And what these Chinese immigrants um, are very valuable for is cheap labor. Um, initially, the Central Pacific, which is you know trying to build east from Sacramento, they have a really hard time retaining workers because all of these workers want to do is kind of run up into the hills and start looking for gold. Um, so finally, in 1865, they hire just a couple of Chinese workers to see how they do um, against a lot of objections from some of the executives. But very quickly, Chinese labor becomes the engine that drives the construction of the Central Pacific. Uh, in 1867, for instance, there is a letter from a railroad executive that says that he wants, quote, 100,000 Chinamen here so as to bring the price of labor down. And until the railroad is completed, it's Chinese laborers who build the, uh, the Central Pacific. It's Chinese laborers who drill and blast the tunnels through 40-foot snowdrifts in the Sierra Nevada mountains. It's Chinese laborers who grade the land and lay the rails. And it's Chinese laborers who die, uh, nameless and uncounted, such that even to this day, we can only have estimates. And one such estimate is that 1,200 died during the building of the railroad, but we'll really never know. Of course... Ming-Su, in terms of his background and his temperament in the book, not temperament, um, kind of the way he holds himself, the way he interacts with others, 
um, doesn't necessarily align closely with what you might consider the quote unquote standard story of a Chinese immigrant at the time. Um, how does his story differ and kind of why did you make the choices you did about writing the character and its back and his backstory in the way that you did? Of course. I mean, I think this, the, you know, the, the quote unquote standard story of, of a Chinese immigrant in the 1860s, if there is such a thing is a historical construct as, as it is received for us today. I think the standard story, it bears these marks of the racist processes of historical narrativizing that created it. Um, what I mean by this, I guess, is that with this time period, especially, you know, with, with the, the wild West, as it looms large in our consciousness, all history is to a certain extent fable. The stories of the American West that have stayed most prominent in our collective national consciousness are the stories that work either to justify or excuse the ugliness in our past. Uh, these stories make those violences mythic or necessary or part of a longer narrative in which America makes itself out of whole cloth. And so we tell ourselves these stories so many times that they say more now about what we like to tell ourselves about our history than they actually say about our history. So by setting Ming's story apart from these, you know, standard threads, um, from these kind of uh, narrativized stories, I wanted to see if I could cut at the question of American identity making from a different angle, um, an angle that avoids the historicized, narrativized standard story. Uh, Ming's story and journey threads through the research that I did for the book. And it's a story that I think, well, that I hope uh, could be possible. It's a story that has the sheen of possibility while also lingering in that middle space between what is historical and what is mythic. Right. And let's maybe get to some of the more mythic elements. I mean, so it's not a straight Western. Um, there are supernatural elements in the book. Uh, I wonder if you might talk about your decision to include those more supernatural, more mythic, um, more, for lack of a better word, mystical elements in the story. Absolutely. I think, I mean, you know, on a very nuts and bolts level, um, it simply made the story more fun for me to write. It did, you know, the story gets more agile. Uh, when, when your characters have magical powers, it really expands the scope of, you know, what you can do in a story. And I love stories that sit in that zone of, of where the reader is unsure what is and isn't possible. Um, but I think, you know, on a more literary level, I guess, uh, including the supernatural or, you know, making the extraordinary ordinary, at least in, in this work, I think that destabilizes the here and now. Like, you know, the, the question of what is it, what is it like to be alive on this earth right now? And, you know, also the question of what is it like to be alive as me right now? I think uh, when, when you have the supernatural in, in a work that is also grounded in realism, you end up imagining a world where even even the actual fantastical has become ordinary. And I think when you experience a world where the fantastical has become ordinary, it, you, you come to think about your own life, uh, your own real lived experience. And you hope, you know, I hope at least that, that you begin to wonder if there are truly fantastical things in your own life that have become uh, banal for you. I think the supernatural suggests that you have to make room for anything, even magic to arise. And I think, that is the exact feeling that I, I've always felt that the landscapes and histories of, of the West inspire, which is you know, a feeling of reality and flux of infinite possibility, ordinary life becoming strange and unfamiliar. And speaking of kind of one particular character um, that kind of brings forward some of these supernatural mystical elements, um, I'd like to talk about the character of the prophet. Um, 
Now, uh, you know, the, the, the trope of the quote unquote mystical Asian um, in a lot of fiction can be um, a bit of a tired trope. Uh, but you do a lot of interesting things with that character um, and how that character kind of understands the the natural world. Um, you know, for example, I'm thinking about the point where he he pulls out a fossil and basically explains the whole process of of how the natural world creates a fossil, um, which is not the kind of thing that you'd expect. Uh, or it, it's 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 a way of kind of framing the natural world and its processes um, through this character. Uh, that definitely kind of makes us different than your standard kind of, again, your kind of standard mystical Asian uh, character trope. Yeah, I think, you know, and it's interesting that you bring up this this trope of the mystical Asian. Um, I think it it doesn't just consist of, I mean, the trope, uh, at least, the trope doesn't just consist of the uh, mystical Asian in question. Um, it, I think it also denotes a particular kind of stance uh, toward mm. that mystical Asian, a kind of assumed white gaze, uh, yeah, if you will, in which the wisdom of the East is is mystic, and and you have all these kind of neutered cosmologies borrowed from you know Zen Buddhism, and the trope kind of suggests that these wisdoms can be learned and then applied to white Western society by a white Western actor. Um, so I think the trope ends up including uh, a lot of tacit assumptions that are present in in, in white culture. Assumptions about, you know, the, the wisdom of the other or about the kinds of positions and relations that are possible with the other, that kind of thing. So what I think is crucial then is, is this kind of baked in um, positionality of the mystical Asian when the trope appears and it, and it gets played straight, that the wise old Asian man is always uh, an ancillary figure. You know, he's always supporting and guiding a white protege. And then the student becomes the student becomes the master is, is also part of that trope. Um, and I think that second part is also important because when when the mystical Asian trope appears and it gets played straight, it positions, you know, Asian knowledge and and the wise old Asian men who bear that knowledge. It positions that as being something that a white person can just pick up on their way to doing something even grander. Oh, right. Yeah. The, the also also, again, common in Western in Western style stories, kind of the, the, the dancing with wolves narrative, I guess is the right, right. Um, the, like the mentor who, who teaches you something important and then you take that uh, knowledge and you go and you do something else. The mentor's story begins and ends with his interaction with you. And I think that is one of the, the reductive effects of the trope. Um, but, I, but the prophet on the other hand, you know, I, I, I personally, the prophet is one of my favorite characters. Um, I think he's just so weird. He is this blind, ancient old man um and he can't remember he has no memory of his past and yet uh, they call him the prophet because he knows the date of everybody's death in the future um and and he can foretell when someone will die and when someone will live um and he also has this kind of deep knowledge of the time uh, of, of the time of the earth of, of kind of geological time his his insights about that seem to come from some distant, far huger view of time and nature. Um, and I mean, personally, I don't think the prophet cares very much at all about, uh, and this is, this is something that uh, another character, Hazel Lockwood says in the book, I don't think he cares very much at all about the simple living and dying of men. Um, I think the prophet is there because the earth is there. And he, in a way is his role is to kind of speak the history of the land um, that extends beyond when humans first arrived and it will extend beyond when humans disappear from this earth. Um, 
And I think another thing that is crucial to the prophet's character uh, is his exquisite vulnerability. You know, he's he's very very old, um, but he's not like those those characters I think that are like old wise men that you know end up being really capable and like can defend themselves. He's just an old guy. He's he's a really old man. His his age is apparent in his body. He has to be helped on and off his horse, and I think crucially that body can be injured. You know, harm can come to him, and so I think he ends up being this, this figure that both guides Ming and also someone that Ming has to take care of, that he has to look out for and protect. And I think those are, those are ways of complicating, if not, you know, entirely avoiding the, the mystical Asian trope um, as, you know, as it is in, in a lot of Western media. So for a time in the book, Ming travels with a troop of characters, each with their own kind of unique abilities uh, how did you develop these characters? How do you kind of think about their abilities and how do they support maybe a few of the larger themes of the book? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the characters in themselves, their abilities are, um, something that you could do in a magic show. I think that was where I started from, you know, this, this, this germ of what if you went to a magic show and the acts that you saw were really magic and, what ends up happening is is Ming then you know he gets recruited to um, watch out for these for this for this magic show and kind of protect them as they go west, and I think one thing that I wanted to to kind of touch upon was this idea that you know these people have genuine paranormal supernatural magical powers. Um, Proteus is a shapeshifter. Hunter Reed is capable of telepathy, uh, and Hazel Lockwood is is fireproof. You know, so so these characters have have genuine powers that that are or could be even dangerous if if they use them to their full extent, and yet the only thing that they can be in in this world is spectacle. They get to be entertainment for other people, and I think one of the themes that I wanted to explore with the magic show is this question of you know to what extent does a racist society or you know or or does a, a society in which you can achieve no power to what extent does that society protect itself by making threats to it into entertainment or into spectacle? You know, how, how is, how is power rendered safe according to structural um, prejudices? So I'd like to maybe take a, not quite big picture of you, but talk a bit more about kind of um, your thoughts about fiction, literature, especially kind of ones set in the West, set in the Western United States and those featuring um, Asian American, Chinese American characters. So the first part of that question, um, why write a Western style story at all? Um, what was it about the genre that appealed to you? Yeah, I mean, I think, and there's, you know, there's two answers for this. And the first answer is, is the, the kind of intellectual answer, which is that the, the Western, I think, is it names a set of stories that we tell ourselves about um, our own nation and, and the kind of people that uh, we ought to be it is a really potent myth-making machine for American culture. And, you know, you can, it's self-evident just because we've been obsessed with it now for almost 150 years. Um, and the first Western started showing up in, in the early 1900s. So, you know, if, if you did kind of the separation from that uh, to, to modern times, it would be like if right now we started writing stories about the 80s and then 150 years later, we were still writing stories about the 1980s. Like that is the extent to which we've, become enamored with this period of American history. And it's not just in literature. If you can drive around parts of the country and, um, 
you can visit stores that specialize in creating reproductions and artifacts of that time, you, like replica guns or, or replica hats. Um, there's so much of our own conception of, of, of what, you know, who we are as a people, who, who Americans are supposed to be that are baked into this set of stories that we tell ourselves. Um, and that set of stories, of course, is, is the Western. So I think working in that genre and, and, you know, introducing a Chinese American protagonist into that Western who doesn't play second fiddle to someone else who, you know, it's just his own story who is capable and murderous and, and, you know, almost kind of unapologetic. I think that was a lot of fun for me um, to kind of, you know, to, to work through. And that leads into the second part of the answer, which is that it's, it's just fun. Western style stories um, are just pure entertainment um, in, in, in a really, in, in a really, in a visceral sense. And I really like that about a story. I love a story uh, that is just fun that picks up and goes and it was a lot of um, it was a lot of fun to just sit down and write that story. Yeah, so your 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 book's not really kind of wanting for action um, <laughs> as as Ming Su travels. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so your book is not the only one that's kind of set during this time period using an Asian or a Chinese American protagonist. Um, if you kind of also kind of expand the period of time we're talking about, uh, there are definitely books I think that are increasingly looking using uh, Asian American Chinese American protagonists on the West Coast, say going into the early 20th century as well. Um, how do you? Why do you think the kind of combination of these two things—the Chinese or Asian experience, immigrant experience—and um, kind of the development of the West Coast? How? Why these two combine to make such kind of the possibility for such interesting stories? I think, I mean, that's a really interesting question. I think it has several parts, I mean, in the answer. The first of which is that, you know, there's there's almost no um, archival history, or not certainly not to the extent that we have, um, you know, for instance, about the various company uh, accounting books of the Central Pacific and, and the Union Pacific Railroads. There's none of that historical detail um, or primary sources from the Chinese immigrants of that time, simply because they were not, you know, considered important enough to, uh, to, to, to write down. Um, even, even in, in the, the construction of the Central Pacific Railroad, all of these Chinese workers oftentimes were never really counted or, or named. Um, and they were only ever spoken of in the collective. You can see these bulletins that they send to each other, you know, we lost four Chinese in a, slow, uh, in a snow slide, or, um, you know, I need another 10,000 Chinese. And so you end up with this, this weird historical vacuum where you feel the, the weight of, you know, just how many people and how many experiences and lives were, were, um, were happening during that time, but almost nothing of the substance of it. Um, and, and to recreate some of that history, you know, requires really extensive archival work and, and oral histories um, and, and, and just like, you know, boots on the ground, a lot of research. And so what you get is this kind of lacuna in history that I, I to me at least calls out for um, stories, you know, to, to be populated with, with, with tales. And I think it is always interesting to kind of go back to, to a point in history that is not as fully um, recorded and to kind of put your own thing there and to see if, if the stories there can make as much sense or feel as real as some of the history that has come out of that period. And I think more broadly, you know, there's Chinese immigration to the United States is 
um, peculiar because it exhibits these kinds of two pulses, the first of which happens between 1850 and 1882, and then there's a 70 to 80 year gap. And you don't see that kind of pattern with really any other um, population of immigration to the United States because that 70, year, 70, 80 year gap is the Chinese Exclusion Act, during which time the, you know, the rate of immigration of Chinese people into the United States is almost zero. Um, and so, you know, for instance, I, my family came to the United States when I was four years old, um, and I speak Mandarin. Um, and all of these Chinese immigrants in the 1800s usually spoke Cantonese. Um, so it's interesting to kind of come, come to, to this country and, and to learn about, you know, this history of, of this other population of, of Chinese immigration and feel at once connected and disconnected from them you know, connected because we're both Chinese American, but also disconnected because we're really from kind of different cultures and, and we're reaching not only across cultures and language, but also across this kind of abyss of time. Um, and so I think there's, there's a lot of room to play uh, when, you think of, when you think about the history. And there's certainly, I think, the need for more stories of Chinese, Chinese American or Asian American characters in the West, um, because I think that genre has historically been, you know, possibly one of the whitest genres uh, in English literature. Um, and so it's always good to add a little color. I'd like to, I think, end the interview with just going to be a, a broader question about um, representation. Um, I think obviously uh, both, I think both this year, but also I think it's, it's been a conversation that that's been going for, for a year or two now about um, representation in in fiction, in TV, in movies, starring Asian Americans and their stories. Um, I guess I just wanted to kind of ask for your thoughts about uh, about representation, um, as I think there is movement to make sure that there are more Asian American main characters. Um, kind of what are your thoughts? What's on your mind? What are some pitfalls to kind of look out for as we start talking more about representation? Um in these kind of creative works? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a really good question. I think the biggest pitfall for, you know, when it comes to representation and, and deciding to, to, to put in characters of color is avoiding tokenization, um, is avoiding just pulling in a person of color just just to show that you could do it um, and calling that representation. I think really what representation is um, hinges on the dissemination of other possibilities. I think one thing that a lack of representation engenders is this kind of unified um, caricature of, you know, of, of, of diversity where, uh, you know, for instance, with the mystical Asian uh, trope to, to return to that, where an elderly Asian man who is wise, you know, can only ever be a mystical Asian. Um, and, and I think what representation ideally should do is, is offer um, as many possibilities as it can. For, for people of color, Would, you know, to say that um, people of color can have all manner of, of stories and of, and of narratives, um, that they're not locked into any particular trope or, or mode or interaction. Um, and, and I think being able to do that and, you know, sidestepping the, the dangers of, of tokenization where you just tap someone and, and put them in, you know, your, your movie or, or, um, or your TV show and you say, well, you know, we've got diversity because there's an Asian person on the cast, I think is the more, the more important thing is being able to say, you know, these characters are allowed to have their own stories. They're allowed a degree of self-determination um, and they 
are capable of not only recognizing but also of um, inhabiting the, the different possibilities that that are in front of them. You know, as 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 people who who exist in a world that is mostly mediated by white culture, and you know, um, and and how they kind of make their way in that. So thank you for listening to our interview with Tom Lin, author of The Thousand Crimes of Ming Su. Um, Tom, one actual last question, if you don't mind. Uh, of course. Where can people find your work and uh, what's next? Uh, so The Thousand Copies of Ming Su is available uh, anywhere books are sold. Um, but if you'd like a signed copy, you can contact my local independent bookstore, The Avid Reader, um, here in Davis. Um, and they'll be more than happy to send you a signed copy of the book. And what's next? I'm currently working on um, my second book, whatever it ends up being. Um, the idea is a little clearer every day, but it's still quite foggy, you know, as, as the writing process is uh, pretty hard for me, I think. But I think it's going to be science fiction. Um, I think it's going to be set in the near future. And um, I think it's going to be a blast to write, you know, when I finally get around to doing it. <laughs> well, that sounds pretty cool. And I am definitely look forward to learning more about it. Um... So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter, uh, sorry, follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. We hope you subscribe and you're listening to the Asian Review of Books podcast, now found on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends if you want to support us, continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more information about who's coming up on the show. But before then, thank you so much, Tom, for joining me today. Thank you for having me.